Good afternoon. This uh, hearing is called to order. I want to, first of all, thank the witnesses for taking the time for your attendance, uh, for your thoughtful testimony, and look forward to uh, hearing your oral testimony and your answers to our questions. Um, we did have a vote scheduled for 245. I spoke with uh, uh, our floor manager, and she said she, she wants it wrapped up by 3.30. So what I will do is I'll just ask that my, opening my written opening statement be entered in the record. Um, but I, I do just want to briefly say that the Balkans is an important, uh, important region. Uh, there have been some real turmoil that has uh, sprung out of that. Uh, I got involved uh, as obviously a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but in particular with uh, Assistant Secretary Wes Mitchell asking me to uh, go there and pay attention. And I think to a certain extent that's, that's what this hearing is about, and it's incredibly important that uh, we as, as, as the United States of America uh, expresses the fact that we, we believe that's an important region. We have to pay attention to it. Uh, we want to do everything we can for the people of that region to enjoy safety, security, and prosperity. It's, it's what everybody around the globe wants. That's what we want for them. So uh, that, from my standpoint, is, is uh, uh, what America represents. It's that kind of leadership uh, when we promote those types of values and we help uh, countries achieve uh, what, what they really are trying to, strive, trying to strive to achieve. With that, I'll turn it over to our ranking member, Senator Sheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this hearing on, as you point out, a very important region of the world. And I will echo all of your comments and submit my full statement for the record, but I do just want to point out um, that yesterday, the Senate overwhelmingly voted to ratify North Macedonia's interest, ent entry into NATO as the Alliance's 30th member and also express my real concern about the effort to date by France and other countries in Europe to block secession, accession um, into the EU by the Republic of North Macedonia and Albania. Um, I think one of the things that is really important as we think about the future of this, the Western Balkans is that we provide an option for the Balkans to look west, not to look back towards Russia and the east. And that whenever we fail in that opportunity, as I think um, the EU did recently, that it sends a very strong message to the Western Balkans that they should not continue with the reforms, they should not continue to look west. Um, and to embrace the values of the West. So um, I just wanted to point that out. That's in my opening statement, and I look forward to the hearing. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Shaheen. By the way, completely agree. Um, it, is, it really is the ability to uh, join NATO, to join the EU. That, that is what provides the incentive for these countries to uh, enact and pass, sometimes very difficult reform for, reform for those countries, but necessary. If they're, they need the rule of law to attract Western uh, investments. So I uh, couldn't agree more. I was actually pretty honored to be in the presiding chair, both for the accession vote of Montenegro and for North Macedonia. So uh, re really welcome them to NAO. Uh, our first witness is Mr. Matthew Palmer. Mr. Palmer is Deputy Assistant Secretary and Special Representative for the Western Balkans at the State Department. Mr. Palmer is a career member of the U.S. Senior Foreign Service with over 22 years of experience under six U.S. administrations. His previous postings include Director for South Central European Affairs, Political Counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Belgrade, and Deputy Director for Mainland Southeast Asia. 
Mr. Palmer also served as director for Europe at the National Security Council under President George W. Bush. He speaks Serbian, Greek, and Japanese. Mr. Palmer. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Shaheen, thank you for inviting me to appear before you today to discuss the successes and challenges faced by the countries of the Western Balkans on their path toward Euro-Atlantic integration. I would especially like to thank the members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for their leadership, for your leadership, which paved the way for the Senate's approval of North Macedonia's NATO accession protocol. That step is critical to demonstrating our ongoing support for the Euro-Atlantic integration aspirations of North Macedonia and the wider region. For the past 30 years, the United States has joined our European allies and partners in working to fulfill our shared vision of a strong and free Europe. Over the last decade, our efforts have started to bear fruit, and we're seeing examples of progress that bring the region closer to the Euro-Atlantic family. One has to look no further than at North Macedonia to see an example of that progress. Since assuming office in June 2017, the government of Prime Minister Zoran Zaev has not only signed a treaty of friendship, good neighborliness, and cooperation with Bulgaria, but also negotiated the historic PRESPA agreement with Greece, arguably the most significant purely diplomatic achievement in the region since the Dayton Peace Accords. The PRESPA agreement resolved the long-standing name dispute between the two countries and paved the way for North Macedonia to become the 30th ally in NATO and eventually to join the European Union. It also created a model other leaders in the Western Balkans can follow to break through the nationalistic and cultural barriers that have held the region back for decades. With its peaceful, multi-ethnic society and fast-growing economy, Montenegro has emerged as a regional leader. Montenegro has consistently punched above its weight in its commitment to global security, and joining NATO in 2017 was a significant and well-deserved step forward. Albania has made tremendous strides in its reform path since joining NATO in 2009, implementing unprecedented judicial reforms and indicting high-profile criminal suspects. Despite these successes, the remaining challenges to Euro-Atlantic integration and regional stability are considerable. We are profoundly disappointed with the failure of EU member states to approve opening accession negotiations with North Macedonia and Albania last week in Brussels. Although we're not members of the European Union, we agree with the European Commission's May 29 assessment that both countries have made significant reform progress, meeting the European Council's conditions and laying a solid foundation to continue reforms during the accession process. The European Council's inaction undercuts EU credibility in the region, risks the continued implementation of the PRESPA agreement, demotivates leaders ready to make hard reforms, and creates a leadership void that Russia, China, and others would be more than happy to fill. Secretary Pompeo appointed me to serve as his special representative for the Western Balkans to help tackle these challenges, underscore the U.S. commitment to the region, deepen cooperation with our European partners, and make clear that there is a path to Euro-Atlantic integration, one that is achievable, even if it is difficult. One of my top priorities will be to work with President Trump's special presidential envoy for Serbia and Kosovo peace negotiations, Ambassador Richard Grinnell, to help the two countries reach a comprehensive agreement on normalization. We expect that the new government in Kosovo will demonstrate its commitment to this shared goal by suspending the tariffs imposed on Serbian and Bosnian imports that have damaged Kosovo's international standing. Serbia, in turn, must cease its campaign to delegitimize Kosovo in the international community. 
This has undermined international law enforcement cooperation and soured the atmosphere for compromise. In Bosnia, we're supporting efforts to reach agreement on a compromise that allows for government formation at all levels, as well as its submission of the annual national program to NATO. We will continue to call out parochial, nationalistic, and risk-averse leaders at both the entity and state levels who do little to help ordinary citizens while cultivating the new generation of political leaders at the cantonal and municipal levels who have a stake in the future of the country and the will to succeed. While Montenegro is the front runner within the region to join the EU, it must stay focused and accelerate efforts to implement necessary reforms. This includes strengthening the rule of law and media freedom and tackling organized crime and corruption. While the United States supports the desire of the people and the governments of the Western Balkans for a more secure, prosperous, and democratic future, the same cannot be said of all the external actors operating in the region. Russia rejects the post-Cold War settlement in Europe and is trying to push back on it with a variety of tools, overt and covert, in order to incite divisions and forestall the region's Euro-Atlantic integration. Chinese authorities have been insinuating themselves in the region through the 17 plus 1 and the Belt and Road initiatives, as well as through their investment in strategic in industries, including information and physical infrastructure, creating new political and economic vulnerabilities. To support the countries of the Western Balkans, we need to increase our own engagement with the region and re-energize our relationships with these important partners. But messaging is not enough. We need to increase our own presence and our investment in the region. It's indisputable that congressional support has been instrumental in our successful partnership with the people and governments of the region. Recent visits from congressional delegations to Croatia, Kosovo, Montenegro, and Serbia have helped to reinforce our shared values and demonstrate our strong support for reforms. We hope to see additional visits from Congress in the future and ask for your help in supporting U.S. businesses as they look for opportunities in the region. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Shaheen, Thank you again for the opportunity to meet with you today to discuss our relationship with the Western Balkans and our continued cooperation in the region. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. Let, let me just start out. Let's, let's hone in on Kosovo and Serbia. Um, with the new elections in, in Kosovo, uh, there will be forming that government. Can you just first give me your assessment of you know, how that has changed the situation? Again, I, with meetings with President Thaci and President Vucic, those are certainly two leaders that, that want to do a deal. Uh, it's, it's a difficult situation, there's no doubt about it. There's nothing easy about this, but what, what is your assessment of uh, the results of the, uh, the elections in Kosovo? Mr. Chairman, these were, these were significant elections for, for Kosovo, watershed elections in many ways. What you're looking at is going to be the first post-KLA government in, uh, in Kosovo, the first government that doesn't include one of the, the parties headed by one of the major figures from the, the wars in the 1990s. Do you view that as a good sign? I view it as, as an, an impulse on the part of the people of Kosovo for change. Um, and, and it's understandable. There's a great degree of frustration on the part of the citizens of Kosovo with the situation in which they find themselves, both the degree of international isolation, um, the economic stagnation, and the failure of Kosovo's governments to make progress on commitments and promises to fight corruption and crime. Um, there's certainly a lot of work to, to do. The LDK, uh, of course, is, is no stranger to government. And at this point, I think most people are assuming that the next government in Kosovo is likely to include 
both the LDK and Vet Vendossier, that's, that's the most likely outcome to this process of government formation. Vet Vendossier is an entirely new player in, in government. They've been around for a long time, um, but this would be the first time that, that Vet Vendossier takes a share of power, and they're taking a significant share of power. They, they came in, number one in the polls. Uh, the presumptive prime minister is, is Alden Kurti. Um, I've known uh, Mr. Kurti for a long time, but how he's going to behave in government, how he's going to deal with the kind of responsibility that comes with that, that sort of office is unclear and uncertain at this point. According to news reports, he's somewhat de-emphasized the dialogue looking toward longer-term reforms, putting those in place first. I mean, does that give you a little concern in terms of uh, his commitment to solving that, that long-standing dispute with the Serbia? I, I think that what that reflects is an assessment on the part of those who did well in, in the uh, October elections, that what the people are, are demanding of the next government is to focus on domestic issues, on uh, employment, on economic growth, on fighting corruption, and I think there's truth in that. You'll certainly see when you talk to the, uh, the people in Kosovo, when you look at the, the poll numbers, when you look at what it is that people are uh, writing in the newspapers or talking about in the cafes, there's a lot of frustration with the domestic scene and desire for change. And that's all well and good. Kosovo is capable of doing multiple things at the same time, however. Even as the next government moves on a domestic agenda, it is entirely capable of simultaneously re-engaging in the dialogue with Serbia and working to achieve uh, a full normalization agreement with Belgrade that opens up a European and Euro-Atlantic future for Kosovo. So you are the State Department Special Representative. Ambassador Gunnell will be the President's Special Envoy Representative. How are you two going to work together, and what do you view the U.S. role in helping those two sides reach agreement? I think we're going to work well and closely together, uh, Mr. Chairman. I just spoke with uh, Ambassador Gunnell a, a few hours ago. We, we regularly speak about these issues and coordinate uh, our message and the strategy for moving things forward. Uh, I know that Ambassador Grinnell is especially interested in identifying commercial, business, economic incentives uh, that can be used to, to help loosen the lid, grease the skids, whatever metaphor you might want to use for progress on the political front. Um, and he's engaged already actively with the parties, with the leadership in Belgrade and, and Pristina, as well as with the business communities to identify those opportunities and push the parties forward in areas where they can cooperate and compromise on uh, economic and commercial matters that stand to benefit all of their publics. And this is something that I think will be enthusiastically received by the leadership in, uh, on both sides. This doesn't obviate the need for a, a political solution, that, that long-term Kosovo's future as a European country can only be secured through an agreement on normalization with Belgrade. Uh, I think that is broadly understood in, in Kosovo as well. Um, but at least at first, I think a focus on business and commercial interests can help reframe the issue in a more positive way. My assumption, right or wrong, has always been the public is going to uh, greet any agreement similarly to the, the way the public in uh, Greece and, and now North, North Macedonia greeted uh, their leaders' uh, agreement. Uh, won't be real popular. Uh, so I've, I've always felt the U.S. role really needs to be to, to provide the support post-agreement to make sure that it, it works out, that 
you know, in six months, uh, both Serbians and Kosovars are, are looking at that and kind of shrugging the shoulders. Why was this ever a big deal? This is really working out well. Uh, we, you know, hopefully for Kosovo, they get recognized by, by the UN, um, and Western investment begins to flow. What one incredibly important economic factor is the power plant in, in Kosovo. Do you have any updates in terms of the financing of that? Uh, my understanding, Senator, is that the, uh, the financing is still coming together um, and that the companies that are involved remain committed to the project and are looking to move it forward. There are a number of obstacles that will need to be overcome uh, in order to arrange the financing. Uh, the United States remains committed to uh, the Kosovo Eire project and to seeing a new power plant constructed in Kosovo. We think it's, it's important, vitally important, that the, the next government demonstrate that it is committed to ensuring the provision of basic goods and services to the people of Kosovo, and that includes making sure that the lights stay on. Uh, this is something that we're going to continue to work with the business community on, as well as with the next Kosovo government. I don't have the exact dollar figures, but the, the savings are so massive in comparison to the cost. You know, I think the payback would be pretty short. I, it's always puzzled me why that's been difficult to uh, really get the financing. I guess my, my only solution would be, again, just the, the uncertainty, lack of agreement with Serbia, uh, and always concerned about rule of law. Uh, I think there are also some particular challenges, uh, Mr. Chairman, associated with arranging international financing for a, a coal plant, which, which has uh, opponents that are arguing against the plant, not on the specifics, but on the general principles. Right. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Sheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Palmer, I want to pick up on the Serbia-Kosovo question as well. And you talked about the, the good working relationship that you have with um, Ambassador Ganell, who has been appointed by the president to be a special envoy to Serbia and Kosovo on their negotiations. Can you talk specifically about how you view um, division of responsibilities with respect to dealing with Kosovo and Serbia? Uh, I would look at it more as a, a partnership, uh, Ranking Member Shaheen, than necessarily a division of responsibilities. We, we share the same goal and objective, which is to promote uh, a more cooperative relationship between Belgrade, Pristina, restart the dialogue process, get these countries moving towards an agreement on full normalization. Um, I, I do think that uh, Ambassador Grinnell is going to be pushing the parties to move quickly. Uh, right now, they have the attention of the White House. They have the full uh, focus of not just the administration, but the, the president and the White House. That's a very useful tool, a very useful instrument. Um, that's not forever. And, and to take advantage of that, the parties need to demonstrate that they are prepared to move on an expedited basis to actually reach some agreements, implement them, and demonstrate that, that they're as committed to reconciliation and normalization as we are. And so are there parameters that you and Ambassador Gunnell have discussed with um, the State Department and the White House with respect to what what we would encourage Serbia and Kosovo to think about in any negotiated settlement? I, Ambassador Grinnell has certainly talked about this um, as a path forward, and I think that, that he's had some initial exploratory conversations in, in Belgrade and Pristina. Um, we're going to continue the dialogue. Um, Ambassador Grinnell and I will, will, will maintain regular communications, and what we're going to do is look for, for opportunities 
that, that we can seize and capitalize on and take advantage of. Certainly right now, we're handicapped some by the fact that Kosovo doesn't have a government. Um, so to really engage on some of these difficult issues, Kosovo is gonna need to form that government. They're gonna need to identify the compromises that are necessary for uh, a uh, working majority to come together in parliament, identify a prime minister, uh, split up the ministries between the coalition partners, all the things that go into that. I think they understand the urgency of this as well, and I'm hopeful that they will move quickly to put a government in place. Kosovo has traditionally taken quite a long time to do this, uh, and we are underscoring for them that, that time is not on their side, and they should move urgently to uh, put the government together and find a path back to the dialogue process. And so have we taken a position on land swaps as a potential uh, tool in settling the dispute? What we would like to see, Senator, is an agreement that is durable, one that's locally owned, one that's saleable in, in both Serbia and Kosovo. Um, I think it's important to underscore that any agreement that is comprehensive, uh, that is really full normalization, is multidimensional. There'll be a security component, there'll be a political component, there'll be an economic and trade component, there'll be a cultural component when you look at issues like uh, the status of Orthodox Church properties uh, in in Kosovo. Uh, as to whether the the borders may or may not be be part of an overall comprehensive settlement, that, that's really up to the to the parties to decide if that's a viable path forward. Um, I appreciate that. However, there are experts on the Balkans who think that sets a dangerous precedent going forward. Um, so, again. Do you have a view on that? Is that something that we should encourage or discourage as we're talking to the negotiating parties? I absolutely understand the, the Pandora's box argument that um, many uh, observers in the Balkans have made about, you know, if you, you start changing a border here, what about a border there? Where do you draw the line? Uh, I think that is a legitimate concern. And, and if the parties move in the direction of Discussing these issues, I think that's something that we would have to work through and see if, in fact, that was a risk that could be appropriately managed. Um, I do also believe that the uh, leadership of the parties who are the presumptive government in waiting uh, have also made clear that, that that's not their preferred path forward. So rather than get too far ahead of the negotiations, um, what I'm focused on right now uh, Senator, and where I'm, I'm working with uh, Ambassador Grinnell is to identify a path back to the dialogue process. And there's a lot of, of hoops to jump through and, and work that needs to be done before we even get the parties back into a negotiating process. So I don't want to get too far ahead of the process in determining uh, what it is that they can and cannot negotiate through this, this dialogue mechanism. So if there are two of you um, working on behalf of the United States to work with Kosovo and Serbia. Does that mean that we have a very formal role in that dialogue? Or again, can you describe a little bit more how that works? And the reason I ask is because during the last talks after the war in Kosovo between Serbia and Kosovo, one of the things that I heard from the EU ambassador who was um, very engaged in working with Kosovo and Serbia was that every day 
um, Serbia was being called by Putin or someone on behalf of Russia to discourage them from continuing to participate in any negotiations. Are we seeing that kind of interference now on the part of Russia? Well, I, uh, Senator, I don't think Russia needs to do that just yet because there is no dialogue process and there hasn't been a dialogue process that has been moving forward for almost a year now. I think it goes back to, to last November was, was the last time they had a, a, a dialogue session. Uh, in order to get back to the table, we need our partners, Kosovo, to uh, commit to this process, to suspend the tariffs that have been an obstacle to the dialogue process and return to the negotiations with Serbia with a, a dialogue team or a, a dialogue representative that is empowered and flexible and ready to compromise and negotiate. At which point, I, I fully expect Russia to resume its spoiler role. Uh, it is not at all in Russia's interests that Serbia and Kosovo are reconciled. It is not in Russia's interests that Serbia and Kosovo normalize their relationship. Um, the unrecognized status of Kosovo by Serbia is the single greatest source of leverage that Moscow has over Belgrade uh, and Serbia's behavior. And they use that leverage aggressively. So uh, as this process moves forward, we will be very mindful of Russia's role and particularly Russian efforts to undermine the prospects for success. So I'm out of time, but can I just follow that line of question, Mr. Chairman? So what are we doing to prepare for that? And how are we urging Kosovo and Serbia to look at any potential negotiations and address Russian interference? I think what we're, we're doing, among other things, Senator, is to have this conversation with, with both parties right now um, to try and identify what the challenges are to success and to reinforce with both Serbia and Kosovo the value of these negotiations. Uh, these are EU-led negotiations. That's the, the United States does not have a formal role in the dialogue process itself. We're there. We're supportive. We're, we're encouraging the parties to, to reach this agreement. Um, but we also want them to be well aware of the value, what's on offer for them, why it's important that they secure this agreement on normalization. This, frankly, is one of the reasons why the decision by the European Council not to extend the offer to open accession negotiations with Albania and North Macedonia last week was so disheartening because it sends Absolutely. exactly the wrong message to both Belgrade and Pristina. That message is you can do difficult things, you can make hard choices, you can compromise, and you can still be denied a path forward to Europe. And that's, that's a very unfortunate message to send, and we're going to work with our European partners to, to change that message in advance of the uh, May timeframe that the European Council has identified as the next decision point on accession negotiations. Thank you. I'm out of time. Senator Barrasso. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate you being here again. It's good to see you. The, uh, you know, I recently uh, had the honor to visit our Wyoming National Guard troops. They're serving in Kosovo. The, uh, the C Company, 1st Battalion, 297th Infantry, uh, is stationed in northern Kosovo near the Serbian border. There's the camp up there. I had a chance to fly up helicopter and visit with them and share a meal and thank them for what they're doing uh, for all of us. The, uh, 
They're part of the, the NATO-led peacekeeping mission to promote stability and security in the region. NATO supervised the stand-up and the training of the multi-ethnic uh, professional and civilian-controlled Kosovo security forces, you're well, you're well aware. Uh, you know, in December of 2018, Kosovo passed legislation to transition the force into a, a NATO interoperability military posture to support international peacekeeping and contingency operations. So what U.S. security assistance do you think is going to be needed as part of this initiative? Thank you for that question, Senator. Let me also underscore what a fabulous job the Wyoming National Guard is doing in Kosovo. They're, they're, they're really just providing tremendous support uh, for that country in a difficult time. And we're grateful for it. Uh, in terms of, of what it is that Kosovo is going to need from the United States through this process of transition, it will be considerable support, Senator, in that uh, we're working with the government in Kosovo. We're working with the Kosovo Security Force on a, a plan uh, to help transition that force. That plan will play out over the course of a decade. Um, so this is not something that happens over the course of, of a couple of months or even over a couple of years. It's a long-term transition. Uh, we're looking for a force that is uh, the equivalent of a, a light infantry brigade, uh, one that is equipped largely with defensive capabilities, but that is also capable of participating in international peacekeeping operations. And they'll require training and equipment and assistance from the United States for quite some time. So those are all the challenges that Kosovo is going to face in standing up its own uh, operational army. Are there NATO allies that really that oppose the move to, uh, to an operational army in Kosovo, do you know? Uh, yes, Senator. There, there are a number of NATO allies that have expressed profound concern uh, about the decision of by the Kosovo government to, to, to make this transition. Uh, concern about the transition itself and the possibility that the transition could uh, heighten tensions with Serbia. Uh, concerns in particular on the part of those members of NATO who are not recognizers of Kosovo. Spain, I think, first and foremost among them that is, has expressed some, some deep reservations about this and it has complicated Kosovo's relationship with the alliance. The, uh, do you know if Kosovo is actively recruiting ethnic minorities into the security force? Yes, they are, Senator. Okay, thank you. I want to just turn something uh, that I think Senator Johnson briefly mentioned in terms of uh, energy and power. And when I was in Kosovo, I learned that the key, one of the key barriers to economic growth uh, in the country is energy security. The uh, Kosovo relies on two aging uh, lignite power plants. I had a chance to see one of them while heading up to the northern part of the country. Uh, about 95% of its electricity generation is from those two plants. Uh, Kosovo's very large lignite uh, resources, I had to see, was able to see that as well from the air, totaling, I think, 12 and a half billion tons, which is the second largest in Europe, one of the largest in the world. Uh, their energy strategy includes building a new 500 uh, megawatt modern coal-fired power plant. Uh, despite its previous commitments, the, the World Bank informed Kosovo in October, a year ago, uh, that it wouldn't help finance it. And, and I disagree with the decision by the World Bank. Um, you know. We should be helping, I believe, countries like Kosovo use the abundant energy resources that they have that can provide affordable, reliable, uh, dependable supplies of energy. So uh, how has this unreliable supply of energy that can be used uh, impacted the economic growth and development that we see in Kosovo? Well, Senator, it's an excellent question. Um, I, I, I would argue that, that it is almost certainly discouraging investment in, in Kosovo from uh, business interests who might otherwise be amenable 
to, to taking a, a chance and investing in, in Kosovo. Uh, a couple of things that will discourage that kind of business and commercial investment, one of them would be uh, the uncertainty of the uh, legal environment, uh, the enforceability of contracts, uh, there's too much cronyism. Uh, these are all issues that need to be addressed and can be addressed by the next government of Kosovo. But, but anything that adds to that uncertainty, including something like the uncertainty of the reliability of the energy supply, is, is going to be something that uh, companies are going to have to factor into their decision-making on potential investments. So the administration, the United States government, has strongly supported the Kosovo A-Ray power plant project. There are issues not just with arranging the financing of the plant itself, but there are issues with the environmental standards associated with the mine that will be feeding the plant that will need to be addressed. And here, there's some responsibility on the part of the Kosovo institutions, Kosovo ministries, Kosovo government authorities, and things that they'll need to do in order to pave the way for a successful program and project. Are there specific requests that the government of Kosovo has asked of us, the United States, regarding assistance in their energy sector? Uh, to work to use our, our uh, influence to uh, help with the IFIs and arranging uh, the financing for the plant. That's something that the, the government of Kosovo has asked for our assistance with. Uh, there's been some challenges with this. It's especially difficult to secure multinational, international support for uh, financing a power plant that's a coal-based plant. Uh, that's been a challenge with the World Bank, as you're familiar with, Senator. Uh, it's been a problem with the, or challenge with um, uh, European banks uh, it's one that we're working to overcome, uh, working in partnership with Contour Global, an American company that's interested in, in uh, making this investment, uh, managing this plant. Uh, but we also need to encourage and put a little bit of pressure on the government of Kosovo to do its part to ensure that there's no uh, shortcomings in the project that would make it harder to secure that kind of international financing. Well, well th thank you very much, and thanks for your service. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator so. Brasso, I'm going to ask you the same question on four different countries or regions. Um, in your testimony, you talked about Russia and China influence into the into the Western Balkans. Uh, I'd like you to ask. I'd like you to state what you think the overall objective, the overall goal of these entities' uh, interest is in the Balkans, and, and what specifically they're doing. But let's start with Europe because we talked about the Serbia-Kosovo uh, dialogue, you mentioned correctly that that's basically being led by the EU. Uh, representatives of both Serbia and Kosovo have really been asking the U.S. to get more uh, strong, you know, more, more engaged. So just in general, and not, not just with Kosovo and Serbia, but talk about the EU's goals and objectives as it relates to the Western Balkans and, and what specifically they are doing. In principle, Mr. Chairman, the goals of the, the European Union collectively, the goals of the individual EU member states individually are the same as those of the United States or the same as those of the countries of the region, which is to pursue a reform agenda that will make it possible for the countries of the Western Balkans to qualify for membership in European and Euro-Atlantic institutions. That means uh, for all the countries of the Western Balkans, membership in the European Union, and for all who aspire to it, which formally at this point is, is all except Serbia, membership in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Progress has been made. 
uh, Montenegro's accession to NATO, Albania's accession to NATO, the opening of a clear path for North Macedonia to become the 30th member of the alliance, that's all well and good. The EU path is harder, it's steeper, it's rockier, it's more difficult. Uh, Montenegro is probably widely considered the front runner at this point, but it still has a lot of work to do, including in particular on, on media freedom. And we've been very specific with our Montenegrin friends and partners about what it is that we would like to see on that front. Europe is challenged on this issue in that the, the opening of the European path is, requires consensus. And in the meeting last week of the European Council, that consensus was not there. And here I think it's important to underscore that the vast majority of member states in the European Union supported the opening of accession negotiations with both Skopje and Tirana. Uh, and it was really France uh, with, with marginal support from, from the Netherlands that, that prevented, that blocked consensus. I think it's also important to underscore that the European Council did not say no. They did not say we will not open negotiations. They did not establish new conditions for the opening of negotiations. They simply noted that we were unable to secure a consensus. That is largely, Senator, in our view, for reasons that have nothing to do with the countries in question. It wasn't about North Macedonia. It wasn't about Albania. It was about concerns and questions that the French in particular had about the process of enlargement and how that process needed to be changed, reformed, and adapted. And, and I would say those are probably legitimate concerns. So I'm, I'm hoping this is a pause, a reevaluation, and you can look forward to future progress. Um, we share that hope. We have, I have limited time. I, I want to talk about Russia. I want to talk about China. I don't know if you can do that quickly, but I also want to talk about Turkey. Again, what, what are their objectives? What are their goals? You know, what, what are their current activities in the, in the Western Balkans? Sure. In a nutshell, Mr. Chairman, I would argue that, that Russia's primary objective in the, the Western Balkans is to prevent that region from integrating into uh, the European and Euro-Atlantic family of nations, to keep the region fractious, divided against itself, um, weak and dependent on, on Russian political support and on uh, Russian gas in particular. So the, the Russian system has an interest in preventing exactly the things that we're trying to achieve. The agreement between Serbia and Kosovo on normalization, a deal in Bosnia and Herzegovina that helps Bosnia and Herzegovina become more functional and that opens up a European path for Bosnia and Herzegovina as well. Montenegro's accession to the European Union. North Macedonia's accession as the 30th member of NATO. Russia opposes all of this. A great, great player, aren't they? What, what about China, what about Turkey? Uh, China, I think, is, is a, a relative newcomer to the scene, and, and I'm not entirely persuaded, Senator, that China thinks about the Balkans in the same way as, as we do as a single coherent space. The point of entry for China into the region is less engagement in the Western Balkans as the Western Balkans and more through the 17 plus 1. So the Balkans here is, is a subset of Chinese engagement with Central and Eastern Europe, uh, this is the terminus of the One Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, China is looking to build influence, make inroads, in part its commercial interests that China is looking to, as to, to this region as an area where they can win contracts and make money. Uh, China is also looking to build up political influence, although I think there's some uncertainty, maybe even on the part of the Chinese themselves, about how they would intend to use that influence other than in a very transactional way 
to, to be able to divide Europe against itself and prevent consensus on issues that the Chinese would consider central to their own security. Here I'm thinking of things like Xinjiang or the South China Sea or what's going on in Hong Kong, um, where uh, influence with a, a number of member states may be sufficient to block consensus on a position that China would find at odds with its own interests. Okay, talk about Turkey. Turkey has uh, significant interest in the Western Balkans. They, they look at this in many ways as being their, their backyard. Um, they're interested in uh, developing partnerships in particular with uh, the Federation in Bosnia-Herzegovina, with uh, Albania, with, with Kosovo. They've put a lot of priority in their engagement in the Western Balkans in identifying individuals that they consider affiliated with Gulenist institutions and putting pressure on the governments in the Balkans to extradite those individuals to, to Turkey. Uh, there is Turkish money that is going into religious institutions, uh, madrasas and jamias, um, that is developing long-term relationships. Uh, I think Turkey sees the Western Balkans as an area where Turkey should be expected to play a significant or even an outsized role. So I expect uh, Turkish interest in the Balkans to only increase over time. Chairman Risch. I'm going to pass, uh, Mr. Okay. Chairman. I just came by to make sure that, that Mr. Palmer had gone home overnight and came back instead of staying here. He looks well rested. Thank you for that, Senator. It's very considerate. Senator Sheen, do you have any further questions? I do. Um, I work to include language in the state and foreign operations appropriations bill instructing the State Department and USID to define ways in which the U.S. government can help empower youth and be used to promote the growth of small and medium-sized businesses in Bosnia-Herzegovina. One of the things that has distressed me most about the challenges that Bosnia-Herzegovina faces is the disaffection of its young people and their interest in leaving the country and not seeing any future there. So can you talk about any existing programs that might further that goal and what is being done already with the State Department and USAID to address some of the economic challenges in Bosnia-Herzegovina? Uh, absolutely, Senator. There are a number of, of programs and projects that we, we have in place looking to promote uh, economic growth, looking to create opportunities for young people. Uh, I do believe, though, that, that among the more significant things that we can do to help uh, accelerate the creation of opportunities is to support at the political level uh, privatization of state-owned and, and parastatal institutions. Uh, these are inefficient, bloated bureaucracies that hold Bosnia-Herzegovina back. Uh, we'd like to see much more effort put into privatizing these, these, some of these dinosaur institutions creating a little bit of economic dynamism. Uh, I think it's also important, Senator, to underscore that one of the things that you will see in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina that's pretty striking uh, is that you will see young people leaving Bosnia-Herzegovina who actually have good jobs and solid economic prospects. They're leaving because they feel the political climate is not one that lends itself to a positive future for them and their children. And even though they have a good job and they have an apartment and they have a, a stable economic foundation, they're still looking for opportunities to move to Frankfurt or London or New York in order to pursue a life that is more predictable, 
and, and that is more secure. And it's this sense of insecurity as much on the political level as it is on the economic level that's driving people to look for alternatives. Um, which I appreciate. I, I think one analysis that I have personally is that what we did with the Dayton Accords was not just stop the fighting, but we put in place a permanent structure that it was going to make was going to make it very difficult to get over the ethnic divisions within Bosnia Herzegovina, and that that continues to be one of the major stumbling blocks to the ability in the country to put together. Uh, a government that offers that long-term stability that the people are looking for. So what are we doing to address the current challenges with the governmental structure that exists there now, and how are we trying to work to encourage the people of the country to take a look at that structure and think about how they might do things differently? That's, that's an excellent question, Senator. I think really the, the only answer that I have for you fundamentally is, is incrementally, that we're trying to move things along slowly. There have been a couple of efforts over the years to do the, the big bang reforms in Bosnia-Herzegovina. There was the, something called the April package, another thing called the Butmir process, and, and both were unsuccessful. They were, were unsuccessful for the fundamental reason that the people who are in position, the ones who need to, to drive the reform efforts by definition, are the ones who benefit from the current structure. They've, they've done pretty well, thank you very much, by the existing system and are not invested in, in the kind of change that we would like to see. So we're trying to press for incremental change, incremental progress. Um, electoral reform is, is one area where there's, there's opportunity to try and move things forward. Um, we're right now working to promote a compromise that would make it possible to form the Council of Ministers, effectively the government at the, the state level, while also opening up a path for Bosnia to submit the first ANP to NATO. The challenge here, frankly, is Milorad Dodik uh, and Milorad Dodik's lack of interest in doing anything that, that would seem to imply a, a future for uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina within NATO. Um, the ANP decision, of course, is not a decision on NATO membership. It's an, it's an opportunity for Bosnia-Herzegovina to engage with the alliance to uh, reform and strengthen the defense and security sector of the country. Uh, it's one that would add value for the, uh, the people of Bosnia-Herzegovina in terms of what it is that, that they can get out of their relationship with government. Um, Milorad Dodik is more interested in shoring up and securing his position in Republika Srpska than he is in helping Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we're also looking to identify the next generation of leaders, uh, young up-and-comers uh, at the cantonal level or the municipal level uh, who may be uh, having a better and a more modern understanding of the relationship between political leaders and those who entrust them with power and responsibility. What's happening in Sarajevo Canton is very interesting, uh, something that, that deserves support. Um, civic parties rather than ethnic parties that are, are running the cantonal level government. Uh, this is something that is, uh, that merits attention and support and, and a little bit of energy and investment on the part of the international community. And so are we doing that? Yes, ma'am. Um, just to go back to the issue with Serbia and Kosovo briefly, again, I would just caution that the potential for 
there to be mixed signals and miscommunication if there are two people who are um, working on trying to address um, the potential future of those two countries, I think is very high. And so I hope you will keep that in mind um, and as you're working with Ambassador Grinnell, that the two of you will look at ways that you can ensure that that does not happen. Yes, Senator, I agree with that, absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Shaheen. I guess I would just add as well, as you saw this fair amount of interest. A uh, number of us have uh, made multiple trips over there, so I just spoke with Ambassador Grinnell yesterday. I, I can see you two are on the same page in terms of the steps forward. I com completely agree with those, and I would just make sure, just ask you to keep us completely informed, and, and we certainly will when we're, we're uh, making trips over there so that we're, as, as uh, you know, representatives of the United States, we're on the same page. Because uh, I, I think we do, we do have an opportunity, but the window doesn't stay open forever. Absolutely, Senator, and, and I know you travel to the region frequently, and, and we are, we're grateful for that. But again, I, I want to thank you for, first of all, your service, uh, your future service, uh, your, your time and testimony here today, and we do have a vote called, so what I will do right now is we'll recess, uh, go take a vote, and then we'll reconvene with our second panel. Senator, thank you, Senator. do you want to ask Mr. Palmer some questions before, before I actually recess? Yes, if I... Okay. Uh, We're not recessing quite yet, then. <laughs> if I could. Um, good to see you. Uh, thank you very much for sticking around for a, another moment. Um, I, I don't know if this is... Uh, I'm sorry that I'm just coming in. I don't know if this has been discussed, but um, one of the questions that I uh, had for you was um, uh, there's been some question as to... Uh, the personnel authority right now over the region. I don't know if this is something that's been discussed uh, as of uh, as of yet. Um, uh, so um, you um, were appointed as special representative for the Western Balkans on August 30th, while you were still serving as the DAS for Southeast Europe. And then on October 4th, the White House appointed Ambassador Rick Grinnell as the special envoy for Serbia and Kosovo. Um, this came as a surprise to the State Department and the leaders in the region. Prime, uh, 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 Prime Minister Vucic uh, gave some fairly uh, candid remarks uh, about his lack of awareness uh, regarding uh, Mr. Grinnell's uh, appointment. Um, what can you tell us about how the responsibilities are going to be divided in the region moving forward, and how does Ambassador Grinnell do both jobs at once. Being ambassador to Germany is a pretty significant responsibility in and of itself, and I don't know that this committee would find it really attractive to have ambassadors to major NATO nations spending half of their time out of country working on really complex problems in other regions. Sure. No, I appreciate that question, Senator. Um, it's, it's not an unfamiliar model. Um, I lived for a number of years in, in Cyprus, working at our embassy there, uh, at which point there was a, a special representative for Cyprus, Tom Weston, and a special presidential envoy for Cyprus, Al Moses. Um, it was a model that worked pretty well. Uh, what I think you see right now in the Western Balkans, with both my appointment by Secretary Pompeo and Ambassador Grinnell's appo uh, uh, appointment by the president, is a commitment on the part of the administration, a commitment on the part of the United States to raise our profile in the region, uh, to demonstrate to the region that we are, we are there and we are partnering with them and we are ready to, to put uh, political capital, effort, and energy into helping the countries of the Western Balkans move forward. 
Um, I think it's terrific, frankly, that, that Ambassador Grinnell is, is there to, to work as the, the president's special envoy specific to the Serbia-Kosovo dialogue. I think only good things can come of that. My mandate's a little bit broader, covers the, the whole region. Um, my focus may be a little bit longer term. Uh, I know that Ambassador Grinnell is interested in, in trying to push the parties forward on an urgent basis uh, to address challenges immediately and to identify areas of cooperation that can be put in place urgently. Uh, and so I think that, that his role and my role will actually be quite complementary. Um, I look forward to working with him. Uh, he certainly is, is someone that, that can bring the full weight and heft of the White House to this problem set. I think that's welcome. Uh, it's, it's our responsibility to work well and closely together and to, to coordinate carefully to ensure that we're staying on message. One of the things that Senator Johnson and I heard when we were in the region uh, about a month ago was, um, and, and maybe I'll speak for myself here, but the concern uh, that for the first time, uh, both Pristina and Belgrade were hearing different messages from the United States and from Europe. They felt that we were simply not coordinated in the way that we used to be. And I know some questions were asked earlier about land swaps. This is uh, amongst the concerns that, uh, that they had. Um, have you heard this concern as well? And what are the steps that can be taken to uh, try to make sure that we are delivering a, uh, a, a similar, if not um, uh, very well coordinated message with the Europeans on our expectations of the two parties? Thank you for that question, Senator. I, I would actually maybe frame it in a slightly different way. I think that, that what, what the region was picking up wasn't so much differences between the United States and, and Europe as such, but differences amongst member states of the European Union and, and between the organizing uh, institutions of the European Union and certain member states. So I think there was uh, maybe different messages that were coming from different European capitals uh, to Belgrade and Pristina. Some of those messages were more closely aligned with the position of the United States than others. Uh, the relationship between the United States and the European Union's External Action Service, Mogherini and, and her team, who were leading the negotiating process, was always very much in lockstep. Um, I do know that there were some, some different messages coming out of different uh, capitals in Europe that I think may have um, been fuzzing the message some. And yes, I agree entirely that we need to work to ensure coherent messaging from the United States, from European institutions headquartered in Brussels, and from EU member state capitals. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's harder to coordinate with the European Union on these questions when we have sent an ambassador there who reportedly told the Europeans upon his arrival that he's there to destroy the European Union. Um, but I appreciate your recognition that this is a challenge we have to uh, overcome. I, I think the region gets mixed messages from our administration as well because, well, you've been appointed and then somebody who was appointed a layer on top of you. Um, the budget that the president has submitted to us is a massive disinvestment in the region. It cuts in half the funding that we send uh, to Kosovo. Uh, it, it cuts by two-thirds uh, the numbers for North Macedonia, uh, similar very big decreases. Um, I mean, we've seen the incredible impact that relatively small amounts of U.S. aid 
uh, has on the region. Every time I go, ambassadors tell us the enormous reward and, and payback we get for relatively small sums. Um, but uh, they also sort of see th this withdrawal of American interest in the region. We have personnel that are committed to the region. I don't doubt you are, but it's really hard for you to carry that message effectively when you have presidential budget after presidential budget that tells the Balkan region they don't matter, um, at least from a funding standpoint. Um, do you believe that U.S. foreign assistance can make a difference in the Balkans? And what do you say to the representatives there who no doubt complain to you that these numbers seem to be perpetually decreasing, at least from the president's proposed budget? You know, Senator, it's interesting, but but no no Balkan leader has ever complained to me about that. I've, I've never gotten a complaint that was based on the trajectory of U.S. budget numbers. Um, the complaints I get are about access. What they want is people. What they want is time and attention. What they want are meetings. What they want are visitors. What they want is, is the appointment of a special representative or special envoy. What they want is to know that, that they have our attention. And, and I would argue that, that my appointment by Secretary Pompeo, Ambassador Grinnell's appointment by the President, is part of delivering that message. Um, yes, foreign assistance is, is a vital tool. We can put it to good use. We have put it to good use in the Balkans, and we will continue to do so. But I've never had a Balkan leader complain hmm. to me about budgets. You may do different meetings than I do. Um, but I hear it maybe more frequently from our embassy staff there. I mean, I remember my first visit to Belgrade in which then Ambassador Kirby talked about the incredible impact that exchange programs had had, you know, that he could point to, you know, a cross-section of leadership in Serbia that was uh, sympathetic to U.S. asks and concerns, in part because they had spent part of their life studying or doing business in the United States thanks to programs that uh, facilitated exchanges, uh, and yet those programs were being largely shut down or dramatically pared back. And so I've heard it from Balkan leaders, but I've also maybe heard it more often from our personnel who are in charge of representing U.S. interests, uh, who see their ability to get uh, our case heard, um, often connected to our ability to run smart programming. But um, I appreciate your work in the region. Thanks for sticking around for my questions. Thanks, Senator Murphy. Uh, so the committee will stand recess until we reconvene after the vote, probably about 15 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senators. Good afternoon again. Um, reconvene our hearing and welcome and thank our, our two witnesses. Uh, I guess we'll start out with uh, Mr. Janusz Bugajski. Uh, Mr. Bugajski is a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy and Anal Analysts and host of the new Bugajski Hour. I'm terrible at names, sorry. Television show broadcast in the Balkans. Previously, he was director of the new European Democracy Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. He has authored 20 books on Europe, Russia, and transatlantic relations and is a columnist for several media outlets. Mr. Bugajski. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Shaheen, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today about both the successes, but also, more importantly, I would say the unfinished business in the Western Balkans. And let me begin by underscoring uh, that the United States commands enormous respect throughout the region, not only for saving lives during a NATO intervention, but for expanding the umbrella of security. We may not fully understand Balkan history, but we certainly understand Balkan geography. And without a final resolution of the outstanding regional disputes, 
we give ground to radicals, criminals, and menacing foreign influences that can pull the United States into another war. It is in America's national and security interests to help resolve the remaining Balkan feuds and develop stable states in the cooperative region similar to the Baltics and Central Europe. Now, my written testimony provides a list of regional successes, so I'm not going to repeat all of them except to highlight one or two. Dayton Accords for Bosnia-Herzegovina, NATO membership for Slovenia, Croatia, Albania, Montenegro, and very soon for North Macedonia, European Union membership for Slovenia and Croatia, independence for Kosovo, the Preshba Accords between Greece and North Macedonia, and the Brussels Agreement between Serbia and Kosovo. Now, despite significant progress in the past 25 years, the region cannot be considered fully secured until at least four obstacles are handled. The two main disputes involve Bosnia-Herzegovina and Serbia-Kosovo. Mind us focusing more on Bosnia, so I will only add two words about Bosnia. I would say Bosnia is less a multi-ethnic country than an association of three ethnic fiefdoms in which nationalist parties maintain the status quo to protect their spoils. It has no effective central government. The Serbian entity persistently threatens to secede. Croatian nationalists increasingly demand a third entity, and Bosniaks are trapped, frustrated in the middle. This precarious status quo cannot be maintained indefinitely, especially if economic conditions further deteriorate. In the Kosovo-Serbia dispute, I, I would say that failure to reach a bilateral agreement heightens prospects for radicalism and regional instability. Hence, I fully agree with the appointment of two special envoys. I would, I would add, actually, it would be good to have another envoy for Bosnia, but that's a, a side question for now. Now, the revived talks have to be based on two clear principles. First, Kosovo's final status was settled over a decade ago when it declared independence and cannot be revisited without sparking chaos and conflict. Second, Serbia and Kosovo need cooperative relations to promote their own self-interests in moving into key multinational organizations. In an ideal scenario, Serbia recognizes Kosovo as an independent state, but this seems highly unlikely in the near future. One viable strategy which I outline in my written testimony is for both sides to undertake a number of important steps within a normalization package. I won't go into this here, but you know, if you ask me, I can, I can lay out a few of these uh, points. <clears throat> now, the two region-wide problems are, I would say, EU blockages and Russian and Chinese subversion. Uh, the EU blockage, I think we've already uh, talked about this. Matt was talking about this earlier. I would say that the decision last week at the EU summit not to give accession, not to allow accession talks for North Macedonia and Albania, not only damages EU credibility, but it can undermine the reform programs in these countries. It can encourage uh, nationalists and their identists. It can weaken efforts at conflict resolution, and it, and it will provide openings for hostile foreign interference. And my last word is on Russia. The Kremlin views the Balkans as Europe's weakest flank, where it can undermine Western cohesion. Russia promotes local nationalisms to weaken support for NATO, the United States, and the EU. It corrupts national politicians and businessmen to favor Russian economic and geopolitical interests. It fosters energy dependence to gain political leverage. It engages in propaganda offensives through local media and social networks to undermine Western values and institutions. 
and it pursues numerous intersocietal connections that increase Moscow's influence, whether through Orthodox churches, political parties, or cultural organizations. The Kremlin benefits from frozen conflicts and frozen states. In Bosnia, it encourages the Serbian entity to keep the country divided and question its future as a single state. In Kosovo, it undermines statehood and raises the specter of partition or reabsorption by Serbia. And I believe Moscow will seek to derail any new American initiative that generates regional stability. It is worth remembering, and this is my final word, it is worth remembering, remembering that the only successful accords in the region are those where Moscow played no role. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Bukowski. Our next witness is Dr. Maida Ruga. Dr. Ruga is a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Previously, she was a research fellow at the Gulf Research Center and worked as an advisor for the delegation of the European Commission and the OSCE mission to Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, Dr. Ruga. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Jean Shaheen. It is a great honor to be back to testify before this committee. Along with many others, I'm deeply grateful to this subcommittee for their ongoing attention and commitment to the region. This hearing comes at a critical point of time. First, the French veto on the start of EU accession negotiations with North Macedonia and Albania has produced profound uncertainty and disillusionment of citizens across the region regarding the future of their countries. It has taken away key incentive and shattered a narrative that has undermined democratic reforms in the region. It has undermined reformists like the Prime Minister of North Macedonia, Zoran Zaev, while emboldening obstructionists and endangering ongoing reforms such as the reform of the judiciary in Albania. There's no doubt that, as you mentioned previously, Russia, China, and Turkey will capitalize it on this major European mistake. What is Worrying, in addition, that it will likely reinforce the exodus of the population from the region. In the last five years alone, Bosnia has lost 5% of its population. It is therefore a great relief that Senate approved um, North Macedonia's NATO accession protocol yesterday. The signal you're sending is crucial importance for the people of the region who feel abandoned by the West. Second point, in Bosnia, will soon mark the 25th anniversary of the Dayton Peace Agreement. That is a quarter of a century of peace brokered under American leadership. And incidentally, I was in Bosnia when the invitation to testify for this committee arrived. The mood there is one of optimism in small pockets of the country where reformist actors are trying to shake up things at the local level, such as Sarajevo Canton. But there's also a great deal of anxiety that American disengagement from North Syria and the recent talk of border swaps will be interpreted by nationalists as a signal that the peace in Bosnia is up for grabs. So I flew in from Europe last night to remind this committee to pay greater attention to Bosnia. American engagement on security as well as political and economic engagement is needed not just to protect but also to improve one of its most important, and I underline, bipartisan legacies in the region. 
Third, with regard to Serbia and Kosovo, there's a need to move forward and resolve the outstanding issues, especially those affecting the lives of ordinary citizens. However, I would urge caution with a proposition that there can be quick fixes on offer. Moving ahead too quickly and without full coordination with key European allies puts at risk fundamental policies and principles that were upheld by successive US administrations from both parties. Maintaining territorial integrity and unviolability of borders remains crucial for the stability of the region. Any approach involving border changes risks producing unintended consequences and emboldening those promoting secessionist agendas such as Milorad Dodik in Republika Srpska. And in this context, I'd like to remind this committee that across the region, the single most important cause of political instability is not ethnic tensions. Instability in the region is largely top-down phenomena. A recent opinion poll conducted by International Republican Commit Institute showed that over 50% of citizens in Bosnia from all ethnic groups identify organized crime and corruption as the number one security threat, rather than the members of other ethnic groups. And here are the measures that the US government, including Congress, could take to secure peace and stability and to protect past US investments in the region. Urge the administration to move ahead with NATO accession protocol of North Macedonia as a matter of urgency. Work with European allies to press forward with regard to Bosnia, finally adopting NATO's annual national program. Bosnia is the strategic center of the region, but progress has been blocked by Milorad Dodik, who is acting as Russia's proxy. Engage France and Netherlands robustly to urge them to honor the EU's promise to allow the accession process to begin. Remind the administration that the policy of successive bipartisan US administrations of more than two decades is founded on territorial integrity and unavailability of borders in the Balkans. Given that corruption is one of the primary obstacles, encourage the administration to hold corrupt Balkan politicians accountable, including through sanctions, and to continue State Department and Department of Justice programs fighting corruption and organized crimes. And finally, Congressional views on Western Balkans should be communicated strongly and directly by bipartisan co-delegations visiting capitals in the Balkans, as well as Brussels, Berlin, and Paris. Congressional voices do matter. But when you visit the Balkan capitals, publicly support and regularly meet with constructive actors, including civil society, independent thinkers, and elected officials at sub-national level, where a lot of good work is being done. In closing, let me underline that citizens in the region continue to have overwhelmingly positive views of the US and the EU. People are not lining up in front of Russian and Chinese consulates. And the reason for this is that they're not leaving just for economic reasons, but because they want to live in democratic societies. The West remains attractive model, and it's the membership to Western institutions that citizens aspire and they want you to stay engaged. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ruga. Let me first start with both of you and ask a very general question. Uh, uh, Dr. Ruga, I think you used the word optimism. How optimistic are you today versus, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years ago for the region in general? Much less optimistic? Much less optimistic. 10, 15 years ago, I was actually working on programs on the ground in Bosnia um, on 
basically not just implementing Dayton, but consolidating key institutions that were divided following the end of the conflict, merging customs and tax services, merging police, uh, merging uh, de uh, defense forces, intelligence services, creating state border service. And it was a time when the U.S. was heavily engaged, but also when the U.S. and its key European allies pulled together in the same direction and results were very visible. There's not much of that dynamic that we see on the ground today, unfortunately. So, so is that the, the primary reason your shift is just lack of U.S.-European cooperation, coordination, and engagement involvement? Lack of, I would say, first of all, lack of high-level political interest, lack of engagement, relatively speaking, compared to, say, 2002 to 2006, um, increasing disengagement towards other uh, foreign policy and security issues, and yes, uh, much less cooperation than we saw in that time. Mr. Brugaisky, what's your evaluation? I would agree up to a point. Uh, it's always ups and downs in the Balkans. You have to sort of look at a, a bigger picture. That's why I do outline some of the positive things that have been achieved. For instance, the, the, the Prespa Accords between Athens and Skopje last year, which was, if you looked at it five years ago, it was completely unexpected. It looked as though they would be stuck in this name question for generations. Uh, I would say, in addition, I do agree, though, that there are increasingly pessimistic indicators in the region. And I would add a couple more. Which, which weren't there 10, 15 years ago, which is the degree of Russian subversion and increasing Chinese subversion in the region, and sometimes negative Turkish influence, which um, Turkey has, of course, its own agenda. It's not, it's not a neo-imperial revisionist, neo-Ottomanist agenda like Russia's is in terms of trying to regain greater influence in the region, greater control in the region. However, all three countries do contribute to the instability. They contribute to, uh, to polarization. They contribute in some respects to uh, religious radicalism. I've seen this in particular in North, Mac in North Macedonia. Uh, and they subvert politicians. In other words, particularly I would say Russia and China, the kind of policies they apply goes directly against the kind of systems, politics, uh, market economies that we'd like to see in these countries. Okay, so let me kind of ask you the same question I asked Mr. Palmer then. Uh, country by country, Russia, China, Turkey. Mm -hmm. What is their overall goal and objective, and specifically what are they doing? Russia, I would say, is the more immediate danger and the bigger danger. China is a longer-term threat. Uh, Turkey is a less of a danger, but it's it is involved right now. Russia. Russia has, I would say, never fully given up on undermining stability in the Balkans to keep the Balkans out of Western institutions, to reduce the American role. Uh, they play on nationalism, they play on religion, they play on ethnicity, and it's a pan-Slavic question, in order to further their goals. They're also looking for new allies, uh, not necessarily like in Soviet times, but allies that will support them on the international arena. Countries that won't, let's say, go along with the sanctions regime for their invasion of Ukraine. They also have economic interests. You know, the oligarchs and the government is closely tied in Russia. If oligarchs benefit, the state benefits. Oligarchs, in a way, express Russian imperialism through the economic uh, arena. Uh, disinformation, contacts with Orthodox churches, cultural organizations. Russia is penetrating the region and trying to push out the United States. What they say about us is that we're the imperial power. 
that we're trying to diminish Balkan independence. We're creating the problems for them. The exact opposite of what is actually happening. So, so Russia's just playing the big geopolitical game, anti-American, pro-Russian. Okay, so that's where I go. What, what about China? China has a longer term, let's say China doesn't have territorial or imperial ambitions towards the region. The, re the Balkans for China is more a question of access into Europe. You know, it's along the, uh, 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 the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it's part of their way to uh, invest uh, through southern Europe into the European mainstream. Um, of course, their economic practices are not along the lines of you know, genuine competition. They corrupt governments. They indebt governments heavily. Uh, governments that are often crying out, even EU governments, like the Greek government. The amount of Chinese investment, for instance, in Piraeus was as a result of you know, Greek inability to raise other kinds of investment for the port. So they play on weaknesses in order to inject their, their influences. In the future, though, the question is, will that economic influence translate into political influence? Will they increasingly begin to use that as leverage for more political influence in Europe? Then Turkey. Turkey, I would say, doesn't have the clout either of Russia or China. It doesn't have the same ambition. Obviously, Turkey is a NATO member and is an, has generally been a good ally, despite of what's happening at the moment um, in, in places like Syria. However, I would say that it's, it's more the political and religious influences emanating from the ruling party, which have, uh, let's say, treated some of the Balkan states as uh, former colonies, in which Turkey insists on extraditing opposition figures or people that they think, or the government thinks, is linked with the opposition, uh, particularly Fethullah Gulen, were linked with the opposition that opposes the Turkish government. And we've had cases, for instance, in Kosovo, of this sudden, I would say, capture. Uh, it's not proper f formal extradition, but capture and evacuation of Turkish nationals to Turkey, which led to the resignation of the interior ministry, which led to, a, let's say, a mini-crisis in the government. So it's that sort of political influence, I would say, that is more disturbing uh, than any kind of revisionist or economic agenda. So, Dr. Ruger, while we're on this kind of train of thought, do you have anything you want to add or disagree with? Excuse me. I agree with all of the points, um, but I'd like to add a couple of them. Um, on Russia, first of all, it's Moscow's key, key policy in the region to prevent NATO accession of Bosnia and Serbia. I think with Macedonia, they've probably given up, but there's two more countries, and Bosnia especially um, has until 2006 signed on ev almost every step in the NATO accession process, but it's since the Americans and Europeans have started to disengage that Russian-backed Milorad Dodik has started obstructing every single step on the NATO implementation um, on, on basically obligations to NATO and Bosnia. Um, Secondly, all of the ties um, which Mr. Bogaisky has, has mentioned um, are very important. Um, what is also important is to say that um, Russia's main basis for political influence in Bosnia is the Peace Implementation Council and then UN Security Council. And Russia backs um, both Republika Srpska leadership and HDZ and its increasingly antagonistic relationship with the West on building the state and maintaining Bosnian state. Um, however, there is something that we really need to be cautious about when talking about the role in Russia, and that is to avoid um, 
confusing and con confusing Russian influence with what is actually the responsibility of local political elites for nepotism and corruption. So what case of North Macedonia has shown under uh, Zayev's government is that impact of Moscow's influence is directly proportional to the level of corruption of the ruling political elite. Once you have reformist government power that is actually committed to transparency and rule of law, Russian influence subsides. Um, on China, um, what is really interesting on China is whether it does have a strategy or not in the region. Um, it, it, to borrow a term from a colleague at the Belgrade Security Conference, China acts like a performance-enhancing drug, which brings out given government's natural tendencies. And most states in the region suffer from poor governance, low transparency and accountability, and poor regulatory framework. China tends to reinforce these weaknesses. Loans are provided without mechanism of transparency or oversight over procurement procedures or implementation of the project. So just to give you one interesting example, Montenegro's highway construction by Chinese Road and Bridge Corporation, where the government um, has borrowed um, about 1.3 billion to construct the highway that EU did not want to finance because it was uh, judged not to have uh, any sort of potential to compensate for cost of investment. Um, it has increased country's debt from 63% of GDP in 2012 to 80% in 2019. What also happens is that in, because of the weakness of the government, the contract that was signed um, with the Chinese Road and Bridge Corporation basically um, really very, in a very untransparent manner stated that if Montenegro could not repay its debt within specific time frame, the Axim Bank would have the right to some of its territory. And so what is happening is that these countries are really getting into debt traps. Mm -hmm. And the, each, the, the, the problems that the Western countries are trying to address, which is governance and rule of law, are just being reinforced and strengthened. So I would say that this is one of the key dangers of China's influence. Um, Serbia has become the poster child of Chinese involvement. Uh, it signed agreements with China worth more than three billion last year, including Chinese investment in Serbian infrastructure, steel production, and Serbia's purchase of Chinese military equipment. Worryingly, Serbia has also purchased more than 1,000 facial recognition cameras to implement a project uh, that is first of its kind across Europe. I could carry on with Chinese constructing the Pelješac Bridge in Croatia to facilitate traffic between the two parts of Croatia across the sea for about 420 million euros, 85 of which is financed by the EU. And that's another interesting um, phenomena of EU procurement procedures not really um, containing that element to monitor how the companies that receive state aid can um, win the contracts. Final, final um, mention on Turkey. Um, its role is more 
complicated. Traditionally, Turkey has um, kind of been part of the institutional infrastructure of the West. It's also part of the Peace Implementation Council. Um, it is the second or third largest contributor of troops to UFOR in Bosnia, which is now um, tasked with securing safe environment. Um, and generally, it has traditionally in the past supported the integration of the region in EU and NATO. Its role has been changing over the last, say, decade, um, where, as has been pointed out, um, the AKP fight against Glulin networks um, has brought in that element of, of foreign policy. And really the question with how, what happens to Turkey and NATO um, kind of in a global context is going to also determine how Turkey acts in Western Balkans, whether it goes closer to Russia or stays supportive of Western um, objectives. Thank you. So, Sheen. So, I pretty much agree with everything both of you have said. And I guess the question for me, and I think this subcommittee, Senator Johnson and I and other members of the subcommittee, are very committed to trying to encourage continued engagement at all levels in the Western Balkans. So the question really is, what are the priorities and the most important things we can do to help address the current situation? Um, based on the discussion to date, I guess I would think um, moving as swiftly as possible to get the Republic of North Macedonia into NATO is one of those things, so that that sends a clear message that that is still an option for um, countries like Bosnia. And trying to engage with France and the Netherlands and the EU to ensure that um, accession for entrance into the EU is still a possibility for North Macedonia and Albania. What else do you think is important that we think about um, recognizing that we probably can't do everything we would like to do, but what else is on that? If you're going to name one or two other priorities that we need to think about, what are they? Well, those, those would be the priorities. and. and the two major questions which I talk about in my testimony, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which Maida's talked about in Kosovo-Serbia, that is a longer-term right. uh, problem that needs to be resolved. But there are still steps that can be taken. Uh, in the Kosovo-Serbia case, I do think the appointment of a new special envoy is extremely vital for restarting the talks. Remember, the talks have been stalled for right. the past year. Uh, both sides, of course, face elections. Kosovo just had them. Serbia is about to have them in April. But I think it's a good time with a new government in Pristina. Um, Serbia itself will have some kind of a new coalition government after April to try and get the sides together. Where is common ground? What common ground can be found? What is it that Kosovo can do? Uh, in other words, trying to remove some of the negatives uh, that, that are in place, like the tariffs, um, greater protection for orthodox uh, shrines, uh, allowing Serbian officials to visit, maybe revisiting this uh, muni Serbian municipalities, the Zajednica question that was within the Brussels agreement. For the Serbian side, it's also very important to press them to do things that are negative against Kosovo's interests. 
In other words, this blocking of membership of international organizations such as Interpol or UNESCO, mm -hmm. um, the campaign of derecognition that Belgrade engages in, they, they need to desist from that. That creates a lot of damage. Uh, it, undermines, uh, it undermines not only relations between the two countries, but other countries look at them and say, well, this is not a very stable region if there is a dis major dispute here. Well, so, can, I'm sorry to interrupt, but sure. it has been suggested to me that part of the issue with Serbia is that um, Vucic, the Vucic government is not really interested, ultimately, in negotiating with Kosovo and reaching a settlement. Do you agree with that? I would put it this way, that Vucic, you mentioned actually when Matt was testifying, that Vucic was surprised, I don't know who mentioned, somebody mentioned, surprised when a new special envoy was appointed. And I think the reason for that is they got very comfortable with the European Union, which seemed to muddle along, no decisions were made, Serbia wasn't pushed to do anything, they could sit on their hands basically on the Kosovo question. Uh, they were proceeding with, with these chapters in the uh, Acqui Comunitaire progress in the accession. That has all changed now, actually, I would say. Uh, a special envoy has been uh, uh, appointed by the White House, specifically on this question. The EU itself looks as though it's not just blocking North Macedonia and Albania into accession talks. It looks as though the French and others are, let's say, scuppering the whole idea of enlargement until there's a major reform of the process. What does that mean for Serbia? They can close all the chapters and still not get in. So it's a sort of desperate times, I would say. It's a, in a way, it's a very good time to get both sides together. I don't necessarily think that Vucic wants to make any major compromises, but if he has no other choices, if this is what America and the European Union, hopefully working together, push him, and also push Kosovo on certain questions, that there has to be agreement if you're to make any progress into any institutions. Dr. Ruga, do you agree with that? On which point? Um, because there were two, kind of two separate issues. One was what, what other priorities should be, and then the other is this whole question on Kosovo, Serbia, which is, I think, a um, separate. Well, I guess I was asking if you agreed with the, the premise that um, the Vucic government does not want to ultimately negotiate away anything to reach an agreement with Kosovo, but also are there other priorities that you think we should consider in the region? So just starting on, because... Beyond those that beyond you've, you've, you've both clearly stated. Stated. Um, just maybe to start on, on the question of um, Vucic's government and Serbia and Kosovo. Um, There's a sense of urgency that has been imposed um, in the last year or two to come up with some new deal. And there are at least 23 existing agreements which have not yet been, four of them may have been fully implemented, the rest hasn't, which focus on different topics such as energy, telecom, diploma recognition, freedom of movement, law enforcement, regulations of commerce, all of these affect lives of ordinary citizens in enormous manner and also affect economy. Um, from the point of view of Serbia, it, you just wonder where did the sense of urgency suddenly come from. One says because of the European Union, in the best case scenario, Serbia cannot. Um, and now it's even questionable whether that would be the date, but would not uh, accede to the European Union before 2025. And 
the part with resolving relations with Kosovo and recognition is basically uh, part of the chapter 35, which is the last chapter. And so in terms of prioritization, you wonder why sudden focus to get some sort of a new deal that reportedly also involves border change when so many of the existing agreements have not been implemented? Will the citizens of Kosovo and North Kosovo wait until and for another six years to even start thinking about the implementation of the agreements, which really- So do you have a theory? Sorry? So do you have a theory about why? I think that it's very untransparent and I can only speculate. The whole process has been kind of, I would say, driven um, by influences from the region. I think that probably President Vucic and Taci have found some sort of a common interest as to why to push in this direction. Um, but neglecting really the implementation of all of the existing agreements that have impact on the lives of their citizens. And I mean, uh, going back to the first question of, of Senator Johnson is what is the kind of, how is the situation changing on the ground and how is the new government of Kosovo going to address um, the, the dialogue? Well, the likely new prime minister, Alban Kurti, has in fact said precisely that, that he's going to focus on substance over speed and that he's going to focus on really implementing um, the existing agreements um, to, you know, to improve governance, to improve economy, to, to remove the hurdles that, um, that, that, that citizens of, especially North Kosovo, but also elsewhere face. We talked about energy earlier. Um, Serbia still controls Kosovo energy transmission lines, and it blocks it from importing um, um, energy from Albania, mm -hmm. uh, which is abundant on hydropower energy. So, you know, these are things that I think should be talking, we, we should be talking about. I'd like to change the subject because there are two other areas that I'm very concerned about. When I first visited the Balkans in 2010, one of the things that impressed me was the vibrant um, press and media that existed in all of the countries that we visited, Serbia, uh, Bosnia, Tikovina, um, Kosovo even. And we are certainly seeing a change in Serbia, at least, um, with respect to the availability of a real free press in that country. And we've seen Russia come in and buy really take over media outlets in Serbia and become the dominant um, media outlet in the country. So are there things that you all think we should be thinking about with respect to maintaining a free press that um, would help? Because I think, as in the United States, ensuring democratic government definitely involves a free and open media. Absolutely, Senator. Uh, this is something that we should focus on region-wide, not just in Serbia. 
because in many countries, it's not just Russian influence, which is right. bad enough, but it's also political influences, it's business influences that control media, that silence self-censorship that journalists engage in in order not to offend a politician or a judge or a prosecutor or some businessman who owns a paper and wants certain things said. So this needs to be covered across the region. I think we need a more vigorous, uh, let's say, NGO-funded um, campaign for media freedoms because I think actually we 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 sort of assume that each generation acquires the knowledge from a previous generation <laughs> oftentimes you have to be taught from scratch what is a free media what is free speech what is disinformation what is news that is propaganda that isn't really checked uh, Russia unfortunately is playing the exact opposite role it likes to have the media in control of specific political parties because then they inject themselves through that media to control those parties or control politicians. So a lot needs to be done, I think, on, on media ed education, uh, on uh, free media, on discerning, public discerning between uh, real journalism and, and fake journalism. Um, finally, one of the things that we have heard some concerns about is terrorism and terrorists in the Balkans. It's destabilizing not just for the Balkan countries, but also poses a threat to Europe and to the United States. How concerned do you think we should be about terrorists, either ISIS terrorists coming back into the Balkans or other terrorists coming from other parts of Russia, Europe, wherever? I think I, I could almost have two answers to this question. Um, we should be concerned, of course, um, in terms of, but, but there's kind of different, I would say two different parts of the answer. One is how much should we be concerned about terrorism within, in the region, in these countries? And, um, you know, comparatively speaking, especially when compared to France and Belgium and other states of the EU, um, with Muslim population, Muslim population in Western Balkans has produced smaller percentage of foreign fighters uh, than, for example, France. Um, there have been no major terrorist attacks um, in the region. Um, that is not to say that we should not be concerned, um, but we should be concerned about two different types of extremism. There's about both in kind of in, on, on the Islamist side, but also on the side of um, Christian Orthodox um, radicalization. And so there's, the estimates are very unreliable because the um, um, intelligence is not readily available, but from open sources there's about 70 to 200 estimated Serbian volunteers who have departed to fight in Donbas area of eastern Ukraine on the side of pro-Russian forces. So that is one cause of concern. The other one is, of course, returning foreign fighters from um, Syria and um, especially also now in the Kurdish territories uh, in northern Syria. And um, I, I have some data on Kosovo and Bosnia. Um, in Kosovo, about 110 of the of its citizens from the uh, Syrian conflict zone have returned. Um, others were left behind in the camps. And um, in Bosnia, 
we have also not such reliable information, but um, about 100 men um, still remain in the, in the camps uh, in Syria. All, about 200 have left altogether, and so far uh, Bosnian courts have sentenced 25 persons uh, who have returned uh, to a total of 47 years. Uh, 47 years. Now that is just some, some statistics. Um, but when it comes to returns and danger, not just, in, not just in, in the region, but especially to the EU and the NATO allies of transition of foreign fighters to Europe, um, I would say what we should be concerned with um, is, again, institutional weaknesses in the region and the existence of smuggling corridors that facilitate unchecked travel from through the Western mm -hmm. Balkan region. And here, again, we come back to the issue of governance structures, institutional capacities, um, and accountability. So yes, that should be a concern. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So I really have just basically two remaining areas. Uh, Dr. Ruge, I think you talked about we need to engage in Bosnia. My, my assumption, right or wrong, has always been, okay, we, we got the agreement between Montenegro and Kosovo on their border dispute. Then we, we've got the Presper Agreement. We're looking, you know, probably the, the next possible uh, resolu dispute resolution would be between Kosovo and, and Serbia. And the, the really snarly one is in Bosnia. Uh, so in what way should we be engaging with Bosnia at this point in time? And that's a question for both of you. You're right. Bosnia, I think, is the tougher nut to crack. Um, let's put it this way. Between Kosovo and Serbia, I don't think there's any possibility or prospect at this point of armed conflict. In other words, the conflict has been contained by NATO, by the U.S., by the American military presence, by the NATO presence, by the borders, and by the recognition of two states. Bosnia continues to be a contested state. And as, be, as been pointed out, I think Maida pointed out, it's not only the Serbian side, the Serbian entity, Dodik and his people that are pushing, let's say, toying with this idea of secession to see what our reaction is. But it's now the Croats, Croat nationalists are becoming increasingly involved in pushing for a third entity. I think maybe we do need a, another envoy or at least one of the envoys that's already been appointed to focus more on Bosnia. Looking at where we have tried and failed, I think Matt mentioned Butmir and the April agreements and so forth, ch constitutional changes that we wanted. There has to be, I believe, some sort of breakthrough at some point in which a civic party enters government and starts to push, not just at local level, but at national level, and starts to, let's say, push away some of the ethnic quotas, the entity blocking, all the accoutrements within Dayton that are no longer, uh, let's say, uh, su no longer successful and, and promote failure of the state. So let me quick ask, are you amazed that Dayton is still basically in place after so many years, and is it, I mean, it's, it's well overdue to be replaced by a permanent deal, but... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is, is it really fraying yeah. around the edges, and is it going? You know, can we expect it to go on much longer? No, I, I've, I've been calling for, for for the end of Dayton since soon after it was applied, because I saw Dayton as basically stabilizing an internal partition into ethnic fiefdoms, and that's exactly what happened. I can send you an article I did about 25 years ago. Not much has moved, unfortunately. We need either a new Dayton, 
or a, a complete, uh, let's say, reformulation of the principles of this state? So again, a spe special envoy to really concentrate on it would be an initial first step. Uh, getting the three national sides together with some of the civic party organizations, civic parties, NGOs, and others. What is it that you want in Bosnia? What will work? What is it that, uh, that, that can keep citizens here? What is it that you need from the international community? What role can the U.S. play? I think it's sort of been sort of pushed to the edges, and we're not concentrating on it. Because it's hard. Dr. Ruga, do you have anything to add to that? Really, it all depends on how much political capital we're willing to invest. I think this question cannot be answered apart separately because if we commit fully, not neglecting other areas because not that much is needed in the Balkans, but what is needed is focus, time, close monitoring, and commitment. Um, then, America has enough clout to do Kosovo, Serbia, and Bosnia simultaneously. And I'd like to remind the committee that these countries and the issues are very much interconnected. I have been arguing for the past year that the idea that we need to focus on Kosovo and Serbia and leave Bosnia for after this issue is solved is really a misguided policy because A, there is no fixed quick fix in Kosovo and Serbia, but B, we can't wait with Bosnia while we deal with Serbia and Kosovo. So again, if there is political commitment, time, focus, cooperation with key EU allies on the ground, because we're not doing this alone, and we are not doing this for the first time. We've been on the ground for the past 25 years. There's plenty of ideas, policy proposals, people that can be included. But basically, what is really needed is political commitment. Um, and in that regard, um, you know, first of all, I think while dealing with Kosovo and Serbia, there needs to be a clear red line that Bosnian territorial integrity is not going to be touched. And that is really key American interest, and it's also key interest of the region. Um, secondly, and I have here, a little document, which is the EU enlargement package and commission opinion on Bosnia's readiness for membership, which is full of policy recommendations and priorities on what needs to be done to improve functionality of Bosnian state. Unfortunately, this has now kind of been undermined with the events um, in Brussels last week, but still, all of the actors are still on the ground. No one has left. The key European embassies are still the major actors because Europe is the major trading partner of these countries. European Commission and EUSR, they're still there. American embassy and capable diplomats and ambassador, they all know how to pull in the same direction, work on this agenda. And I think what is really needed from, from Washington and from the capitals in the EU is to empower these actors, to give them political backing, to say we are all pulling in the same direction, um, but these voices and support from Washington need to be heard more loudly. So you're saying you need an overall solution. You can't just pick and choose in terms of Serbia, Kosovo, and then turn your attention. You really need to do the whole thing. I mean, Mr. Geiske, would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's not, not one package, let's say, all in one piece, but they're interlinked. Do you, do you if we made a bad decision on, on, over Kosovo, this will affect Bosnia. Uh, if, for instance, if we allow for a partition of Kosovo, unilateral, uh, in return for Serbia allowing Kosovo to enter international institutions, Serbia would then use this as a precedent, as a pretext for Republika Srpska. And I think what, that's what some in the government are probably aiming for. So, so the last thing I want to talk about is organized crime. Uh, in, in my chairmanship of Homeland Security, you go down to Central America, for example, and your eyes are open. Uh, you know, our insatiable demand for drugs give, given rise to drug cartels, they're untouchables. Uh, that creates a level of impunity, but you find out it's very difficult for law enforcement because you're, you're a new sheriff in town and you get a DVD from the drug cartels showing your family going to church, going to schools. Uh, went with Senator Murphy and we visited Ukraine, met with the new prosecutor general who I think he had to have both arms twisted off to accept that position, which I actually found very encouraging. But you got a very good uh, primer in terms of the overall corruption within that prosecution, uh, within those prosecutors in, in uh, uh, Ukraine. So can you describe, with that kind of granularity, the type of organized crime we're talking about in the Western Balkans? And again, I'm not assuming it's uh, common between all the, all the nations there, but can, can you describe what, we're, what you're talking about? Excuse me. I would say, Senator, that the Balkans are both a, a generator of organized crime, but also a transit route for organized crime uh, between the Middle East and Europe, between, uh, even between South America and Europe with some of the cocaine that comes in you know, to ports on the Adriatic Sea. In terms of internal generation, there is, unfortunately, because of the, let's say, lack of rule of law, lack of judicial reform, connections between politicians and criminals, which exist throughout the region, I wouldn't single out any particular country, this not only, this not only uh, corrupts the political system, it also generates revenue for criminals. Uh, it, it means that uh, borders are porous for criminals. Uh, and then into Europe, a lot of the drugs, people smuggling, um, weapons smuggling, Go so through the so it's basically all of the above. It's all drug, the above. Yeah. Human and sex trafficking. It's exactly. Exactly. Okay. One thing I would say, though, it, it, I wouldn't give up on this. Uh, some moves have been made to try and tackle this, and this is precisely where we should be supporting any new government that pledges itself to really tackling corruption, really tack because corruption and crime are often interlinked. And this is why it's worth watching, in Kos we mentioned Kosovo, the new government, the new prime minister in waiting, Albin Kurti, has actually said, and he's not implicated in any criminal uh, behavior, he's never been in government, so he's never been in involved or been tempted by corruption even at this point. He has said that we need an Elliot Ness in Kosovo. We need somebody that actually deals with, with these criminals within our institutions or linked with our institutions and, and take, try them, convict them, and imprison them. That hasn't happened in the region. Is it as brutal as you see in Central America? I don't know Central America, well, I don't know South America that well. I was in Central America many years ago. Uh, there, there were communist insurgencies going on at the time. Uh, it is, it, it's not as brutal in the sense of what I see going on in places like Mexico and Colombia and so forth. It's, um, I don't think it's, it's as, let's say, intrinsic to those societies as it has become in uh, certain South American nexuses. Okay. Senator Sheen, do you have anything further? Yeah. Dr. Ruga, do you want to add anything to that? No, yeah, sure. Or, or anything else, because I think we're about ready to close out the hearing then. Excuse me. 
On organized crime, I would just remind how tightly related organized crime is to ethnic politicians and existing structures, which are either Dayton Peace Agreement's constitution in Bosnia, which produces an enormous amount of overlapping competences, fragmented institutions, etc., that reduce possibilities for oversight and accountability. Um, it is an inheritance of a conflict where, in fact, criminal combatants, smuggling uh, groups, and ethnic leaders were connected um, in one um, network, and it survived in the aftermath of the conflict. And th I think it is important, both in, from the point of view of security and economy, but it's also important to keep this in mind when negotiating any solutions for fixing either Dayton Peace Agreement, electoral law, structures in Bosnia, or coming to a solution in northern Kosovo, where we have an enormous amount of legal um, loopholes that facilitate smuggling, tax, obviously tax evasion that facilitate all sorts of organized crime. And so, you know, if I would have one recommendation to um, special rep two special representatives that we have is to really understand to what extent criminality is interlinked with the issues that we're discussing under the pre pretext of protection of ethnic interests. Okay. If there's one point I'd like you to leave with, it's that one. My final thank you, and this is basically ties to my final point, is... Um, I cannot overemphasize how important it is to give political support to your career professionals on the ground who are who have you know institutional memory who know what's happening and who are really trying to push back against everything that we've identified in this testimony and just as an anecdote um, to quote a name um, of a person who has actually helped me come here um, is your consular officer, Anthony Bronson in Berlin, who has gone beyond the call of duty and turned up in the consulate at 5.30 a.m. in Berlin to issue me a visa so that I could actually make by plane and come to Washington. So I will leave you with that. Thank you. Well, again, I appreciate you giving him a shout-out. Senator Shaheen? Um, well, yes, I was going to say that. Uh, I think... We very much appreciate the expertise, the experience, and the commitment of our dedicated foreign service professionals, and I appreciate your pointing that out and recognizing just what a difference they make. Thank you both very much for your testimony. Gugowski, you seem like you want to say something? No, just thank you uh, at this point. <laughs> okay. Well, again, I want to thank both your witnesses. I I've personally found this uh, hearing to be very informative, which is the, the point of... The well, it's the point of hearing, so... Uh, again, thank you very much. Uh, the hearing record will remain open for the submission of statements or questions until the close of business on Friday, October 25th. This hearing is adjourned.